from Griffith University. I'm Nance Haxton, and these are Remarkable Tales. Ags has known from a young age that all he wanted was a career on the front line of creating music. On the back of his bachelor's degree from Griffith University's Queensland Conservatorium, he has established a career that's taken him around the world, touring, recording and writing with artists such as Xavier Rudd, Sahara Beck and Tony Childs. This year he won the part of Glenn Harding in Baz Luhrmann's Elvis movie, taking his creative talents to the big screen. But then COVID-19 struck, delaying production of the movie and throwing the lives of many fellow artists and muso-creatives into disarray, as long-held performance bookings fell away. But Ant has moved with the challenging times, using the eclectic array of musical genres he consolidated at the con by channeling the pain and uncertainty that so many feel into his music. This episode of Remarkable Tales, captured in Ant's home studio, he gives us some insights into the mysterious creative process of songwriting and how his masterclasses and research are trying to capture the special magic of why some musical collaborations work and others flounder. That's beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, this beautiful piece that you've just played for us? So welcome to Remarkable Tales, Ant. Thanks, Nance. So that little piece is called My Favourite Place Is You and Me. And you know, that lyric is from a Kate Miller-Heidke song. She goes, my favourite place is you. I think, And the song to me, when I first wrote it, I didn't have a title for it. And I kept feeling like it was the kind of song you would play um, if you really love someone and you wanted to dance to a song. And it was like a waltz for that. And then I remember hearing that lyric and I was like, that's such a cool lyric. And I sort of named the song that. Do you find that you're, you spend a, a quite a bit of time playing, composing? Uh, is that your joy? Oh, definitely, definitely. And like I was saying to you before, today I got up and started playing for hours and it, it reminded me of how happy it makes me, how calm it makes me, and just how when you're doing something that you're, you really enjoy doing, it's yeah, very fulfilling, and I think I forget it sometimes that I, I don't play enough. It sounds like this has been a lifelong love for you, Ant. Would that be fair to say? It wouldn't, Ant. So I started playing when I was... Mum said I started playing when I was about six. Mum started teaching myself and my two brothers. Gave us lessons for about a year when we were about six, and then we all went off to get music lessons. We all had piano lessons. I had bass lessons and sax lessons as well. So music was a huge part of our lives our, our, from, from the 
very start. Did you imagine that you would go on to the conservatorium <laughs> even when you were there or was it really the, the joy of playing that got you started? It's a good question. I mean, you know, when you're young, you don't really – it wasn't – I started thinking about the conservatorium, I guess, later on in life, you know, when I was sort of 15 or 16. But when I was younger, I knew I wanted to do music. Well, I think I was in second grade. I had a teacher ask me um, – Asked everyone in the class, what do you want to be when you grow up? Let's do that exercise. And I just said, I want to be a piano player. So I knew when I was young that's what I wanted to do a lot of. And there you go. There and you so go. it has become. I, yeah. think, I think it happens sometimes. It's, you're really lucky to have that vision from when you were quite little. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we had a piano at home. Mum used to play quite a bit. My, both my brothers were playing a lot. So it felt very – and my neighbours, they played – and my neighbours on the other side played as well. So for us, it was very... And I also had friends from school who were pl- around the block. And it was almost like it was so natural for people to be playing music. Yeah, it's a, it seems like a strange thing. But yeah, it felt very natural to be doing it. I remember interviewing James Morrison at, wow. uh, a while ago. And one thing that he said always struck me. He said, oh, I don't practice much. I just play a lot. Yeah, right Is it a on. bit like that for you? <laughs> I guess. I mean, he's so uniquely talented. And, and Herbie Hancock, I've heard him say the same thing. He said, I got to a point where I sort of stopped practising. I didn't want to play unless there were people there that I could play for. And I really like that. And so uh, that kind of thing is, I've sort of, I think I practice less these days for that reason as well. And you want it, if you're playing, you want to hopefully have people there that you can share it with. And it's reconnecting, I suppose, with the fun practice just sounds so onerous. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You've played with so many people over the years. Can you tell us a bit about quite a variety of genres as well? I have, and I've always been into different kinds of music. I had a focus on classical when I was a kid, but that lasted mainly until, you know, I left school and then I got right into stuff like hip-hop and pop and, and different rock and roll and people would introduce me to even punk music that I was never exposed to as a kid and then I'd get into certain types of punk and so I would wind up performing with different kinds of musicians and also I'd be jamming with different people who were different kinds of stuff and almost getting stuff off the ground that was completely different to other music that I was doing. Um, my first band was a, a really eclectic group called Aphrodisiac and we played, we started out as a fusion group that would play 20 minute songs and we'd play really long solos and it was all about communicating with each other and really listening to what was going on and truly creating and as the lifespan of afro went we delved into other styles we started to become a hip-hop group and our challenge was always always how can we even in ourselves how can we define what we're doing we went from we played such a wide scope of music over 10 years. But it, yeah, wound up becoming like a hip-hop group, that. And yeah, I, I toured with different people like Xavier Rudd playing folk and reggae stuff. I did a small tour with Tony Childs. That would have been fun. It was great. She was she was really, at that time, she was really into her new stuff, which was really good. Um, I was a big fan of her hits that she had. And I've uh, recently, people like uh, Cole Leinhardt and Sahara Beck, doing their thing. And Sahara Beck, such a exciting emerging artist. That must be reinvigorating for you as well. It so was, Nance. And she's an amazing talent. Some people you collaborate with, you do something and it feels good. And other people you, you collaborate with and you're like, oh, we need to do more. You, you come up with so much stuff. And when I and when I write music with Sahara, it's, it's like, a, I think we're into different kinds of music. We wouldn't get to go and look at our CD collection or our 
streaming collection and think it's that similar. But when we get together, we tend to write really quickly. And yeah, she's she's fantastic. And a band that when I was touring with her, a band were fantastic. Great, great bunch of guys. Bit of yin and yang going on. Balance each other out in a way. Different styles that come together. Exactly, I reckon. <laughs> and maybe because we don't know each other, there's such a huge age difference. We've written together three times. The first time we wrote this song just came out from nothing. The second time I went over to her house and she was already playing with a little riff and we just kept going with it and made it a song. The last time we wrote, she came in here and I said, hey, I've got this little groove going. And I played it to her and she was like, yeah, let's let's do something on that. And we wound up writing a whole song just really quickly. And it's, it's, a real, it's really fun to write with someone and collaborating is something I don't think I do enough. Was that the song that... Was on her album, I believe. The is that right? Song, that song was the tw- was the second song where I went to her house. Uh, she messaged me that morning and said, "Hey, do you want to come and write some music?" I said, "Yeah." So I went to her house. She already had the verse for that song. It's called Twenty First Century." She had a verse. I'm not sure if she had a chorus idea. But she had the verse sort of already going, and she had the words. I was like, "Cool." So she was already playing the piano. She plays piano as well. Then I sat at the piano, and that session it was a, went for about an hour and a half, two hours, and it was just. Lots of jokes. I recently talked to Sam Dixon, who's a bass player for Adele and Sia and their musical directors. He was doing that, and now he produces more than plays live. And he was in Dig. You remember Dig, the funk band? And Sam, I was like, what makes a great writing session to you? And Sam was like, it's usually the song appears in the, in the cracks between all the jokes and the fun times. Like a song just kind of appears. And that was what this session was for me in Sahara. We would joke around have a good time and then we go oh yeah so what should the next line be and we sort of do the next line and then we kind of you know joke around a bit experiment with stuff and that's how 21st century was written i didn't do all that i could i could have saved the ground on which we stood no point in saying sorry over there and she texted me on messenger oh, so this is like three months after we'd initially written three quarters of the song she messages me and says hey i need another i need the bridge or i need the last verse or something and i don't write a lot of lyrics oh wow so even writing remotely yeah totally totally <laughs> which i which i haven't done a lot of and so this was last year i think late last year because message in the morning and so it would have been you know like three or four in the afternoon in in LA and now we're actually in the studio you know putting down she's like I'll send you what we've put down so far and she said I need a uh, I need some more lyrics and so I sat at the piano and I just thought we just started bouncing stuff off off each other and so when when we're writing we find she writes most of the lyrics I'm more of a sounding board um, I might come up with a line I'm like, like oh, what about this 21st century and she's like yeah cool let's make it sound like this so I'm more just like for as far as the lyrics go, just like, you know, adding stuff. So she wasn't really asking me to write the lyrics. She was more come up with some stuff and she would 
you know, take it from there. That creative process, it must be a fascinating thing to be part of and I suppose to even nurture within yourself to be open to different ways of collaborating or writing music. That's a really good point, Nance, because I think some sessions I've done, I'd walk away going, was I, did I bring the best that I could to that session? Sahara, I think that the way it works is it's so natural. We don't even have to, there's something about that chemistry between us as writers. We don't have to think about anything, we just do it. I think, yeah, other times you need to remind yourself to be open to stuff and try different things. brings us to this year I think and this this crazy year that it has been for so many people (laughs) you had a very interesting story I think about the beginning of our COVID times that I was hoping you could maybe tell us because it had a quite a vivid start for you didn't it (laughs) it did the week leading up before COVID before it really sort of became a thing the week leading up and you were hearing stories from the news and reading stuff and we're all start starting to chat to each other about it I was on set of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis movie. Fantastic. What you, were you doing? I'm playing a piano player called Glenn Harding. How exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was on set doing that. And I was in that situation. I was spending more time, I guess, off set, you know, talking to fellow people in the cast. And I was speaking to Peter Golikov, who's playing the organ player. And Pete lives in Brizzy. He's a muser. And I was like, dude, is this COVID thing full on like what what is this thing and i was like are we supposed to even be here was it, it was we're starting to get that point anyway the following week i'm back in brisbane uh, hanging out with a guy called danny whittacombe who's playing a guitarist in the movie and tom hanks <laughs> tom hanks had just announced that he had covid whoa yep and we were like okay it looks like we're not going back to the set uh, this week <laughs> And so what happened was Danny and I went to a doctor. The doctor said, okay, how close were you to Tom? And we were like, we were in the same room, but he was actually quite a distance from us on that day because I was only on the set with him on the set, oh, for one day. She said, okay, uh, so here's the thing. No one knew anything about it. You don't need to get tested yet. If you weren't that close, monitor your health um, and just go and hang out by yourself if you, if you can. And so we did that and... That movie got postponed. As yes, so many things. As everything did. Oh, so it just gives you a glimpse into how disruptive it's been, how devastating in so many ways. Isn't it? Like that production had so many people Mm. working on it in all facets. Yeah. And it just got canned. Particularly for for the creative, for the musical, for the arts industry. It's been a devastating year. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it really has. And just to watch everyone else. All those productions kind of stopped. The gigs, I had two gigs booked for that weekend and they got cancelled. That Friday night was the really the beginning of these gigs aren't going ahead. Mm. So it, it canned all that. My day-to-day didn't really get affected because I'm often, you know, either... Or in a way, from that moment, Danny and I said, hey, let's do this record we've been wanting to do. 
So that was your COVID? You, was, you tried to channel that energy into... Yeah, at first I, I freaked out like everyone else. And I sort of <laughs> thought... And you know what? I kind of have the opinion now, and I did for most of it, that if you could just get closer to family over that time, then there's you, you kind of win. Trying to achieve stuff in that, especially at the beginning of COVID, trying to achieve stuff when stuff is so uncertain, I think in any respect is... Is really difficult. It was a strange time in that sense, wasn't it? Yeah, because mm. because of the uncertainty, we didn't know really, we didn't know what it was at the time so much. It took a while for us to get educated on what it was. In some ways, we had all the time in the world, but it just felt oppressive in some ways. Yeah, exactly, it does. <laughs> I think that uncertainty is what oppresses you. Yeah. Once we got over that after a few weeks, and we just sort of once we got used to the uncertainty and knowing, okay, we don't know when we go back to work. We've got these lockdowns happening. I don't know if I can go back overseas anytime soon, all that kind of stuff. Once we became accustomed to the uncertainty, I think that's when I was able to just get into what I wanted to do, you know, and make that be okay. And So what's happened since then for so, you this year? Well, the first thing I did was record an album with Danny. We did it remotely. I recorded piano parts here. I sent them to Danny and that was all quite sparse piano ambient kind of beautiful kind of sounding pieces so rather than zooming people you lucky thing you were creating beautiful music this yeah. is great <laughs> yep. but isn't it incredible how the remote landscape now can enable these sort of projects i can't it, it can't and it almost forces you to do it because i saw like so i i would send music to danny he would put slide guitar on it and produce it all and we we came up with an album from that fantastic yeah and while he was producing and mixing and mastering it all then i was writing other stuff other piano stuff as well and it was actually stuff that i've been wanting to do for quite some time it gave me the time to to do it. Wonderful. And dare I say, have you heard what's happening with the Elvis movie? What's been the update? Yeah, so they went back into production about two months ago. They they kicked back into it. Well, that's good news. Oh, it's, it really is. I think Queensland being so, well, not COVID-free. But, but coming off it, yeah, a lot lighter than other states of, and countries. Yeah, from what I hear, Warner Brothers uh, on the Gold Coast is fully booked out for the next foreseeable future Baz Luhrmann's got it for the next you know while he's doing this movie there's other movies that have that have already hired it out after him uh, uh, assuming that we don't have another wave I guess all that will be really good which is great because that movie's hired so many of us locals I spent 10 days big full days on the set lots of other people did from here from Brisbane and from the Gold Coast and from the Sunshine Coast so it was fantastic I just you know, to be able to uh, do something in that time that was creative. And there was moments on that set where Baz Luhrmann, his head, the assistant directors were amazing, Elvis's movement coach, Polly Armstrong's amazing, the, uh, the lighting people, you know, top people at the top of the game. And the guy playing Elvis is a guy called Austin Butler, and he's incredible. And he, his game sort of lift, I think, it, when everyone saw how good he was at it, it gave everyone a reason to go, okay, I'm going to bring my best to this as well so there's moments on that set where it's where everything came together because you know there's us in the band and there's a full orchestra and a full cast everyone going at the same time there were times when that was you know really exciting so 
So we'll see you on the big screen soon. Yeah, if my scenes make the final cut. Oh, <laughs> let's hope so. After ten full days. I know, yeah, totally. You've got to be there somewhere. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, so hopefully we'll, um, we'll that see. will be released maybe soon. I think twenty late 2021. Mm-hmm. So I think they finished filming bad. in February. They'll spend the next time editing, and if they get it done at the schedule they want, I think October or November 2021. Brilliant. Yeah, so... Um, that was and that was my first time doing a doing a movie. And first time acting, or you've you could, dabbled in that you, before? If you could call it that, I did. I did, <laughs> I, I did drama at school, <laughs> but that was one of the biggest challenges: like playing piano and and acting at the same time, trying to look like I know what I'm doing and be in character while exactly. you're playing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Oh, so where does that bring us to now? What What are your plans for the for the foreseeable future? I suppose. Yeah. So now, lots more co-writing. Sahara and I messaged the other day. We she's got some Tivoli shows come up, so we'll co-write once she's done those shows, and, and she's got more time for doing that. Oh, great. Um. So yeah, my goals at the moment are to to keep writing with, you know, more people. I've just started a company called Delicate Black, which specialises in music for synchronisation, which is what a lot of musicians have you know, I've done over the last little while since COVID, a lot of people gone, well, I can't perform. If I get, how do I get my music out there through TV shows, movies, advertisements, you know, YouTube, people that need music for YouTube or podcasts or whatever. So my new company, Delicate Black, specialises in music for those um, applications. So really evolving in these times as yeah. well. Yeah, and I'm mm. kind of lucky because that was that was a project I've been wanting to do for quite some time. So to get that off the ground is, yeah, I'm stoked. So that's a big focus for me at the moment. Bring it back, I suppose, to your conservatorium studies. I mean, mm-hmm. did that provide the good foundation? Things have changed a lot, I, I know, in that time. But to have that solid foundation, is that something that you look back on and think, oh, yeah, I'm glad that I did that? Oh, I'm so glad. I've got the best memories of because I did my... Did my degree in two parts. Yes, I noticed that. (laughs) And I thought this is definitely something to draw out on because it doesn't have to be a linear, completely linear process, does it? Exactly, exactly. And for me, I think if you can do it in a linear process, but for (laughs) me, I started my, I took a gap year after high school, then I enrolled the, uh, the year after. So I think I was 19 when I enrolled. Oh God, I had fun. I mean, it was <laughs> the teachers were amazing. The students I went through were great. I've just got great memories of playing so much music there, being surrounded by so much music there. And then during the uh, at nights, I was in bands like Afrodisiac started then, and I was in other bands. And so while I was playing most nights of the week, Brisbane was so vibrant then in a live sense. So this is, you know, this is late nineties, early two thousands when live music was starting to become less and less around town but it was we were still doing lots of live stuff then and the conservatorium i took i was doing jazz piano but i still took classes in the classical course i had a lady called huguette brazine teaching oral skills so we would have to sing a bark melody each week that kind of stuff and so i was in a room with sort of seven opera singers and me so it was that was a really <laughs> challenging bizarre. it was very challenging because they were also good at it and i wasn't um great at it but good for a musician to be surrounded by music in that sense oh, yeah, and just absolutely immersed in it. Oh, totally, and that's what was so that was so good. That was what was so good about it. And I dropped out after two years, a three year course. I dropped out after two years. And you started Doing playing a bit. Some, I was playing. I was the reason I I chose that at the time. I think was because I was playing so many gigs, 
and I just felt like I'm kind of sick of studying. Even though I'm having a great time, I'll, I'll come back to that. Or I wasn't sure what I'd do. And then I came back to it in my mid-30s. And so when I went back, I had a great time again for a different reason. I didn't really socialise this time. You know, I was in mid-30s. Most people were in their 20s, early 20s. But I used to see those people in their early 20s all hanging out with each other. I was thinking, oh, God, I remember that. That, that was the best days. But I knew what I wanted more. I, I sought out four or five different piano teachers over different terms to teach me. Like I had Jamie Clark, who's a great guitarist, teach me like p- even piano. Like we just would go through concepts. Then I had Steve Newcomb, who runs the course there, teach me. He was in Manhattan at the time doing his PhD. He, teach, he gave me lessons over Skype for a term. I had different teachers, which was great. I, n- I sort of had a better idea of what I was doing, what I wanted to, what I learned, I think. So I focused more and I just, I just remember having the opportunity to learn so much stuff at that time was really refreshing as a person, I think. And I, th- I fully endorse people, you know, going back to study it at any time. And not to feel like if you've dropped out, that's the end. I know, yeah. No, well, I mean, because that, that is a natural human response. You think, oh, yeah. well, that's that opportunity gone. But actually it is something you can revisit and finish yeah. that. Yeah, and, and get a lot out of doing that. Like mm. I was very lucky that I was able to to do that in that in that way. I think it's a great way to, to do it, to split it into two like that. And then to go back and do your Masters. Yeah. <laughs> after after that big interruption. The way that came about was I was at a music studio in near Gasworks. And there was a guy in the studio who happened to be there at the same time as we were in there. And he said, do you know who owns this studio? I was like, no. He said, this is QT Studio. And there's a master's degree you can do there, which is free. It's a Master of Fine Arts course. And I was like, I don't even know what a master's is. Anyway, one thing led to another. And I found myself enrolling for that course. And yeah, that. And then a couple of months later, I was asked to join Xavier Rudd's band. And so I wound up putting the Masters on hold. I, I took a leave of absence uh, quite a few times. And so that wound up taking me five years to complete. And so I handed my thesis in a couple of months ago. I'll find out in January, February, how much of it I have to redo. And that was based on interviews mainly. Yes. After I started touring and I was meeting musicians from all around the world and it really got me thinking, it'd be great to, to interview these guys further about how they see music, how they feel about music. Why they why, uh, do they teach? Do they record? Do they perform? Why? So that evolved quite organically. Yeah, it really did. Yeah, and, you know, it was like questions I was asking myself: Do I prefer to perform or do I prefer to record? Do I want to write music or do I want to teach music? You know, because Leonard Bernstein gave a speech when he was about seventy, and he said, "I got to a point where I was like, I have only got time now and the rest of my life to do one thing, and I decided to be education." because he was a great composer, a great piano player and a great conductor. And so, you know, those periods of your your life where you're like, well, what should I focus on? What do I love to do? How can I make that work? And so those conversations with those, it it wound up being 10 interviews, all about an hour long each, some of them in person, some of them on Skype, a few of them on the phone. One was Joe Crichton, who's John Farnham's bass player, was John Farnham's bass player for about 10 years. Sally Anna Campbell, who was Bernard Fanning's violinist on his last couple of tours. And great to hear from these people that are so crucial to an artist. I mean, I'm sure John Farnham would say it's not just me up there. Like, but they're so crucial to that overall sound. But really, you don't hear from them very often. So yeah. that's exciting. Yeah, exactly. It was great to hear how they felt about music and how enthusiastic they were. And also, 
every one of them was so enthusiastic to share what they knew and share how they felt about stuff because I said part of the point of this is I want a young musician to read this and get something from it. And everyone was great. And it was, you know, it was interesting. Nance was, as a, like this conversation I'm having with you now is, is inspiring for me. And I noticed, you know, some people say if you need some inspiration, go for a walk or something like that. You know, if you get stuck. I found after these conversations with these people, I'd feel so enthusiastic and energized and and pumped just from having a conversation with someone. And, and it's almost like therapy, talking through stuff and hearing how other people felt because you don't feel so alone anymore. And you're f- hearing people talk about what they're passionate about. So I really enjoy, yeah, I really enjoyed those interviews. Like hearing Sam say, look, the best writing sessions I've had. And it, one of the great things Sam said was, sometimes I'm paired with other, uh, my, my record company, he said, oh, I, I set up most of my writing sessions myself, but sometimes my record company will say, this person's available for a writing session. They'll be in London. Do you want to meet up and have a writing session? He'd be like, okay, cool. Because he's written with Chris and Aguilera and, and um, Sia and Adele and all these people. He said, sometimes you look at, the credentials on paper and you're like oh this is going to work great you know either we're similar or just well, I think it's going to be great and you'll get to the session and nothing really happens it's kind of like what I was saying about me and Sahara when we get together just sparks just fly musically it's it's fantastic but you don't have that with him and that's what he said he said you just can't tell what's going to work and he said a lot of it's down to luck but he said if you plug at it every day and you do your best every day and eventually something's going to blossom you know and you never know which session it'll be in it might be wednesday with this person or it might be thursday with that person and another interesting thing he said was when he worked with adele he said at the time adele was recording her album and she was writing with different people and he said i was just lucky she had something to get off her chest that day she really had something to say and you know sam's a really humble guy he's like i just got lucky that day to be there at you know, to write with someone who really wanted to say something. It's like you're trying to define a synergy there and, and how that synergy happens. Yeah, yeah, and why and, you know, the luck, appreciating how lucky you can be sometimes. Mm, what are the factors that come into play? Yeah. Is there any chance we can hear some more of your wonderful piano playing skills for our Remarkable Tales audience? What do you think? You bet, Nance. I'd love to.
just love that ending. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and I love the music hanging in the air as well at the end of beautiful pieces like that. It's gorgeous. That's from the EP Black Days. And Black Days, I named it Black Days just because, for two reasons. One, because COVID's been such a difficult period for us. And also the explosion had just happened in Beirut. And one of the songs on that EP is called Beirut. And I thought it was so sad. I saw one of those visuals of it from an apartment block and you see it and I thought that's so terrifying and terrible what happened and so I, I called the EP Black Days. So where can people find your work? We'd better make sure that we get that out there for people who, who want to find out, hear a bit more of, of Ant because you're certainly eclectic. I mean, you toured internationally with Xavier Rudd and recorded mm-hmm. two albums. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Storm Boy... And Live in the Netherlands are the records that I made with Zave. The Live in the Netherlands was uh, an album we recorded live. It was in Utrecht, is possibly how an Aussie might pronounce it. It's about an hour <laughs> south of Amsterdam. And that was uh, at the end of uh, a, a big European tour that we did. It was a lot of fun. Um, so that had Bobby Alou's on drums for that one. He was at Griffith. Bobby Alou. There you go. Yeah. I'm on those two records with Zave. I'm on a bunch of Aphrodisiac records. And you released a solo EP this year. I did indeed. It's called Black Days. Where can we find that? Black Days is on all streaming stuff, Apple Music and Tidal, Amazon, Spotify. Uh, You can go to my website to click a link to listen to it. As I said before, before Black Days, I recorded an album called Face with Danny Whittacombe, and that's an ambient piano and... A slide guitar record, really ambient, great to put on on Sunday afternoon. And is that on streaming everything's services on streaming. as well? Yeah, yeah, everything's out there for for that, yeah. The songs that I chose were from a, the group of songs that I'd been writing and recording over COVID. And I actually had to learn the songs to be able to play them because I kind of wrote them, I recorded them as I wrote them in a way. So, yeah, that that's from Black Days. Oh, I think you've captured that sombre mood that many of us felt through COVID beautifully awesome. there with that yeah. track. Mm. Yeah, it was a, it's, it's been a tough time. It's lucky that we're, things are on the up. We're emerging now and yeah. more, more work coming your way. And thank you so much for joining us on Remarkable Tales today. My pleasure, Nance. That was Griffith University Queensland Conservatorium graduate Ant Ags speaking to me in his home studio in Brisbane for this episode of Remarkable Tales. Remarkable Tales is a podcast production of Griffith University. It's produced by Nance Haxton. That's it for this episode of Remarkable Tales. I'm Nance Haxton. See you next time.